So the prophet Isaiah, he comes out of swinging this morning, doesn't he? I mean, these are, are some real fighting words that he is saying if I ever heard them. Because listen to how he opens the passage this morning, how he addresses his audience, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is what he says. He says, hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the command of Yahweh, you people of Gomorrah. And whenever you see those words Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, you need to pronounce them just like that. Sodom and Gomorrah. Because in the world of the Bible, these two place names, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're used to represent the very epitome of sin and evil in the world. Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, being the students of scripture that we are, we of course all know what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, right? It has something to do with the homosexual agenda, right? It has something to do with same-sex couples wanting to get married and have equal rights, right? Right? Wrong. If you go, of course, if you go to the New England Baptist Church over there, they will indeed tell you that that is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you go to the Bible and ask the Bible what the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, they will tell you this. Hear the words of the prophet Ezekiel, who says, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant. They had abundant food and not a care in the world, but she refused to help the poor and the needy. So to reiterate, the sin and evil of Sodom and Gomorrah have nothing to do with homosexuality and have everything to do with their callous disregard for the poor. And in fact, Sodom and Gomorrah were so famously callous towards the poor that an entire storytelling tradition sprung up, basically to further drag their names through the mud than the Bible already does. So according to these old rabbinic legends, Sodom and Gomorrah were places of great abundance. They had abundant natural resources. They had precious stones and silver and gold. Every pathway through these cities, the sages said, were lined on either side with seven rows of fruit trees. But the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were greedy, and they wanted to hoard all this great abundance for themselves. So they got together, and they actually, according to these legends, they overturned that ancient law that mandated that they provide hospitality to wayfarers passing through. But that wasn't enough even. So, so later on, we're told that they actually passed a law that prohibited all forms of charity within their city limits. According to one of these legends, uh, if uh, an unsuspecting beggar happened to wander their way into Sodom, what the residents of Sodom would do was they would take a coin out of their pocket and they would, they would scratch their name into it. And then they would actually go and everybody in the city would go and give that beggar a coin. Sounds pretty charitable, at least from the outside looking in. 
But apparently there was agreement, an agreement among the people of Sodom that they would not sell that beggar bread nor give them water. So several days later, when that beggar had died of starvation and dehydration, this legend says, the residents of Sodom would go and pluck their coin from the beggar's corpse. Awful story, is it not? That is an awful story. But with his opening words, the prophet Isaiah is accusing the residents of Jerusalem of being similarly as awful, of being similarly as callous towards the poor. Like I said, he comes out a-swinging. But it turns out that the prophet Isaiah was just getting warmed up. Because after he addresses them with this scathing address, he, he launches into what can only be described as a, a prophetic tirade. So listen to what he says next to, to his listeners. He says, and he's speaking on behalf of God when he says this, he says, these interminable sacrifices of yours, what are they to me? The blood of bulls, lambs, and goats nauseates me. When you came to present yourself before me, who asked you to trample over my courts? Don't bring any more of your useless offerings to me. Their incense fills me with loathing. New moons, Sabbath, assemblies. I cannot endure another festival of injustice. So what is being described here is this amazingly complex religious system that to us seems oh so exotic, oh so foreign. And because this religious system is so unfamiliar to us and, and so it's so complex, perhaps even needlessly so, there is a tendency for well-meaning Christians, especially those of us with an aversion to smells and bells, but, but there, there is a tendency for well-meaning Christians to interpret Isaiah's words to be a critique of the specific rituals that he is pointing out in his little diatribe here. But what we need to keep in mind when we listen to the prophet Isaiah's words is that every single one of these rituals that he mentions is a ritual that was mandated by the Mosaic laws for the Israelites to follow. In other words, the Israelites believe that every single one of these rituals is a ritual that was mandated by God, God's self. So clearly, clearly what Isaiah is critiquing here is not how the Israelites are worshipped, what they're doing inside the temple walls. No, that was all prescribed to them in fastidious detail by the laws of Moses, by God, God's self. Rather, rather the problem with the Israelites' worship is what they are doing outside of the temple walls. And specifically, what Isaiah is saying is that they are acting much like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
The people of Jerusalem, like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, are turning a blind eye to the suffering of the poor and the powerless in their midst. And as a consequence of that behavior outside of the temple, God is rejecting their worship fully. He says it's nauseating to him even. So what the prophet Isaiah is doing here is he's forging for us a pretty clear connection between what we do here inside the church, our temple, and what we do outside of this church. What he's saying is that there is a deep, intrinsic, inseverable connection between what we do outside of these four walls and what we do inside them. We cannot cordon off what we do outside from what we do inside and vice versa. We cannot cordon off what we do in here with how we live our lives outside. And if we are not careful, says the prophet Isaiah, what we do outside of these walls can actually invalidate and make a mockery of everything we do in here. Especially, he says, if we act in ways that hurt the poor and the powerless. But here's the thing, and I think this is true, Uh, And if it's not true, if what I'm about to say is not true, I need you to come see me immediately following the service. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Immediately following the benediction, come and see me if what I'm about to say is not true for you. But I believe it is true that none of us here, upon leaving worship today, as we're driving along, if we were to see a homeless person out on a street corner spanging, Yes, the word spange is the word that the homeless community uses to describe the activity of standing out on a street corner with a cup in hand asking for money. It is a portmanteau of the word spare and change. Mush them together, you get the word spange. But none of us, after leaving worship today, if we saw a homeless person out spanging on the corner, would pull over, get out of our car, sucker punch that homeless person, and steal their cup of money. None of us are going to be doing anything crazy like that. I pray. I don't think again. Come see me after service if you have that impulse. But what we might do, what we are far more liable to do, is to vote for a town or city council member who might sign on to some anti-camping ordinances for our town and city. Those are those ordinances that make it illegal to sleep outside at night in a tent or a makeshift shelter, essentially criminalizing the the act of being homeless. Now, none of us, I think, are going to leave today and go and and punch a homeless person in the jaw. We're not going to do that. But what we might do you know, what we might do is we might vote for a, a governor that, that supports legislation that makes it illegal for folks to sleep in their cars overnight. Legislation like that is passing through states. Legislation like that is passed in states throughout our union, and it disproportionately affects homeless families, not individual, but homeless families who need to sleep in their car 
in order to stay alive. No, none of us here today, we're not going to go out and we're not going to grab a cup of change from a homeless guy. But what we might do, right, we, what we might do is, is go out and vote for a congressperson who wants to slash funding for substance abuse treatment programs in the name of lowering our personal tax burdens. And while there is considerable physical and emotional remove there, certainly more than clocking a homeless person in the, the jaw and stealing their money, while there is considerable remove there, the choices we make in our political lives, the choices we make in the voting booth, have just as much, if not more, impact on the poor in our community. And so if we take Isaiah's assertion at face value, that, that what we do outside of this church impacts what we do inside, that we can't divide up our lives like that, then we need to, we have to consider how our political choices affect not just us and our interests, but we need to consider how they affect the, uh, the interests of the poor as well. Because according to Isaiah, caring for the poor, even with our politics, is a spiritual imperative. And if we're not willing to do that, if we're not willing to consider our homeless, our poor, and powerless neighbors when we go to the voting booth, what Isaiah is saying is, don't bother coming to church. Don't bother praying. Don't bother singing any pretty little hymns. Because all that's doing is putting lipstick on a pig. And you'd be far better off spending your Sunday mornings over there at the Ball Square Cafe. Because at least you'd be getting eggs benedict out of the deal. You're getting nothing, Isaiah says. You're getting nothing from coming to church. And neither is God. But all this begs the question for us, I think, and this is a fairly big question of why? Why? Why is there such a, a, a strong connection between how we treat poor people and, and how we worship? Why is there a connection there at all? It's not, very, it's not a straightforward connection, is it? Like, what does that homeless guy on the corner spanging for money have to do with us here singing these great hymns? I love that hymn that we started off today. New hymn, we're going to be singing it a lot. But, but what does one have to do with another? And nowhere in Scripture is that connection more beautifully articulated, I think, than in chapter 25 of the Gospel of Matthew. And this is one of Jesus' last teachings to his disciples uh, before he goes on to his death. Uh, and they're in the Garden of Olives. And he is imagining for his disciples a judgment that will take place at the end of time. And he tells his disciples that, that to some of those people being judged, he will say to them, come to me, you who are blessed. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. 
And even as Jesus describes it, he just says the people that he says this to, they're going to be confused. They're going to be confounded. They're going to look at him like he's crazy. And they're going to say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When did we ever see you thirsty and give you something to drink? Or as a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and come and visit you? To which Jesus responds by saying, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And that's why. That, that's the reason that our spiritual life is so wrapped up with the poor. That's why what we do outside these church walls so dramatically impacts what we do inside the church. It's because God so radically identifies with the cause of the poor and the powerless that there's actually a one-to-one connection between them. So much so that what we do, how we treat the poor and the powerless, passes on directly to God. If we love them and we care for them, then we love and care for God. And if we ignore them and if we hurt them, we also ignore and hurt God. That is why our callousness towards the poor outside the church makes our worship inside the church offensive, offensive in the eyes of God. That is also why serving the poor is so central to us as we seek to follow Jesus. And honestly, that's, I have no more points to add today. That's it. That's all I got for you. Uh, but I just want to close today by offering you a prayer. Uh, and this is from a prayer from an old Pentecostal woman by the name of Mary Glover. And uh, Mary Glover, she was a volunteer at a soup kitchen or a, a food program, a neighborhood food program down in Washington, D.C., located just 20 blocks from the White House. And she volunteered at this program for years and years. It was at, uh, every Saturday morning program. And literally hundreds of families would line up uh, on Saturday morning just to get a bag of groceries right there in our nation's capital. And every Saturday morning, with this line of people outside the door waiting to be let in, Mary Glover would gather the volunteers together. They'd hold hands, and she would offer this prayer. She would say, Thank you, Lord, for waking me up this morning, that the walls of my room were not the walls of my grave, that my bed was not my cooling board. Thank you, Lord. And remember, with all these people waiting outside to get food, she would say this. She would say, Lord, we know that you'll be coming through this line today. So, Lord, help us to treat you well. Friends, in our church, in our political lives, and in our whole lives, may it be so. Amen.